Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning again. It is hour two of Mornings with Carmen. If you missed the first hour, let me really encourage you to go back and listen. We covered headlines with Ben Johnson. Uh, and then we had Ad, uh, Amber Fogarty from Mobile Loaves and Fishes in Austin, Texas. It's an inspiring effort there um, that you are absolutely want to go, uh, going to want to hear about and check out further um, what's happening uh, in Austin to address Serious issues like homelessness, um, but other issues as well, food scarcity, food insecurity, on and on and on. All right, two headlines that have my attention this morning. The Centers for Disease Control has released some additional data related to causes of death among Americans in 2020. And let me give you these staggering numbers related to Uh, deaths resulting from drug overdoses in the United States. So drug overdose deaths reached a record high in 2020. 93,331 Americans lost their lives last year due to drug overdoses. That's an increase of more than 21,000 individuals. It is a nearly 30% increase from 2019. So drug overdoses in the United States have steadily risen since the year 2000, to the point that uh, death uh, resulting from a drug overdose is now one of the leading causes of death in the United States of America. And some people will say, well, it's a, um, this is a one-off. This is um, a result. Uh, it's an unintended consequence of COVID shutdowns, of the isolation that people experienced, of uh, the fact that they couldn't access the kinds of community health resources that they had been accessing, um, folks isolated from one another. And that is certainly a complicating factor in all of this. It also raises concerns and awareness about uh, the rising percentage of individuals in the culture who are suffering from mental health disorders. And when you are seeking to self-medicate in, in relationship to those as a, opposed to getting um, you know, professional help, spiritual counsel, the other kinds of things that we would encourage people to resource um, when facing those kinds of challenges. The other numbers that are included in this report are um, really troubling as well. Um, the FBI is reporting, um, and, and this is alongside the CDC, and they're doing so because they regard this as a public health concern. So just note that for a moment. Violence is now a public health concern in the United States of America. So preliminary data from the FBI says that murder rates rose by at least 25% nationally in the year 2020. 25%. And aggravated assault increased by uh, 10%. And I suspect that 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 number is, um, that that reporting number related to aggravated assault is probably low. Um, Earlier this week, President Biden announced his intent to nominate Dr. Raul Gupta, West Virginia's health commissioner, 
uh, or former uh, health commissioner in West Virginia, as the administration's director of national drug control policy. I think everybody views this as a very, very positive nomination um, and something that we absolutely must as a nation begin to address. The other headline that grabbed my attention this morning, well, actually grabbed my attention yesterday, but we didn't have time to talk about it. Um, So come to find out after printing and pumping trillions of dollars of stimulus money into the uh, American marketplace, guess what happened? The value of the dollar decreased, which forces everyone to charge more for goods and services, resulting in something known as inflation. And we talked about this uh, when the when the numbers um, had T's in front of them, trillions instead of B's, billions. And we said this is going to drive down the economic power of every dollar, which is going to naturally raise prices. And so everything literally costs more. And the response of some people will be, well, now that everything literally costs more, we need to print more money and give people more money so that they can pay for the things that now cost more. You see how this is a awful self-perpetuating cycle that continues to drive down the value um, of the buying power of every dollar. So let's pay attention to what is happening and let's um, and let's be people who think in um, in, econ- in actual like macroeconomic terms related to money. Um, and let's see if we can't help meet the needs of our neighbors in uh, in other ways versus just continuing to print more money um, and distribute it through the government. All right. Peter Kapsner is waiting in the wings. He and I have a number of headlines to discuss this morning, including, this one will not maybe surprise you, um, come to find out people actually bond more with puppies than they do with wolves. Okay, that's not a surprise to anybody. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Peter Kapsner for um, headlines that you might have missed. I mean, there's some headlines that we're going to cover that you won't have missed, but <clears throat> this one you might have missed. Um, Peter, good morning. Good morning, Carmen. Fun to hear your opener a bit with the different uh, dimensions of it. And and if I can just say briefly about the inflation thing from a firsthand standpoint as a, as a business owner, it's going to be a little crazy this fall uh, in inflation. I think uh, the cost of the goods that we produce from a raw material standpoint are up some 400%, meaning that one pound of steel that used to go for you know maybe 30 cents a pound is $1.20 a pound, and containers to get them overseas from China to the United States or Vietnam, United States, uh, Europe, United States, wherever, the cost of those containers, Carmen, are up from about $6,000 to $20,000 per container, meaning that you know those containers are packed with goods that line the shelves at Target and Walmart and all the places where we shop, and, and costs are going to go through the roof. So you're spot on in terms of it's probably a good idea to start thinking about how we steward our money. So there's, there's lots to talk about for sure. Um, grocery stores are actually like stockpiling um, non-perishables because they're they're want they want to buy them now because they're anticipating yep. there's going to be a spike in the future and so warehousing um i mean maybe that's good for uh warehouses that have been sitting empty and now we'll have plenty of uh things uh, to have in them but i it just it's going to be a serious problem and so you know being being aware of it and being planning ahead as as best you can is important um okay uh which leads us to a conversation about <clears throat> dog food maybe are you <laughs> maybe, stockpiling right? dog 
Are you stock? Are you stockpiling dog food? Would it surprise you to learn? Would it surprise you at all to learn that dogs um, have more significant relationships with people than wolves do? Oh, I. <laughs> I, I don't know that it would surprise me, though. I mean, the Jungle Book would have maybe, maybe uh, a little bit more hopeful that you could be raised by wolves and create this bond, right? But here's here's where I miss my calling in terms of research, Carmen. Yeah, you know, I, no I, re- I, I might research obscure biblical passages or theological thoughts from the third century that I think might be relevant, and and I love that kind of work. But these researchers, they got a chance to research whether uh, wolf puppies or puppy puppies uh, bonded better with human beings. And I think my favorite part of the research, and I don't know who the subjects were that decided to say yes to this, but they literally had the animals, these these puppies from each side, sleep with the human beings at night. Now, I love wolves. I really do. They're one of my favorite animals. But under no circumstances am I going to sleep with four or five wolf puppies at night. Under no circumstances at all. So, but the, the research is just killing me. I loved it. And and like you said, to no surprise, humans definitely bond quite a bit better with puppy puppies than wolf puppies. And uh, and so it's making me rethink my stance on puppies because they, I, I love a dog. I don't know that, I, that I've wanted one, but boy, oh boy, they really seem to have a genuine intuition about bonding with human beings. And during COVID and all of these things we've been dealing with, I'm sure a lot of people found a lot of solace in the companionship with, the, with their dogs. It was a great article. It's totally fun. Um, uh, so I'm sure that there are advocates out there for all kinds of uh, of all kinds of things. Like we should let wolves be wolves and let wolves, you know, <laughs> live with their mommies longer and not have to live with people. Here was um, part of the part of the article that caught my attention and why I wanted to talk with you about it. Evolutionary anthropology is actually the area of study here of the uh, researchers involved evolutionary anthropology. And here was the question. Uh, Did dogs develop their traits through evolution or is it a product of thousands of years of domestication? So ultimately, this is a nature or nurture. This is a study of the question of nature or nurture. Um, It's also, I think, an opportunity for Christians to enter into a conversation where the word evolution is teed right up uh, in the headline. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's spot on, Carmen. I think it's it's interesting um, to have that conversation because I think you can look at it from a couple of different angles. I think on every level, the idea of, of sort of a single cell beginning to all of life that then evolves spontaneously uh, through the kind of species that uh, just survive because they're the fittest and all sort of stuff, and, and human beings and dogs and worms and giraffes and everything all evolve from that. I think that uh, is really poor science on every level. It's obviously unbiblical on every level as well. There, There is a uniqueness with which God created all of creation, uh, and he put them in their place when day six with the animal, or day five and, and six with the animals and the human beings. It's very clear that that God had an intentionality, not just for human beings, but for the animal kingdom as well. And then what's interesting on the flip side of it is that within the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, uh, it is a verb-based language, and what that means is that as God was creating human beings and, and animals and, and everything that he created, the Hebrews were, were clear to say that, that human beings and animals are verbs and they're not nouns, meaning that they are subject to change. They, do, uh, they are influenced uh, over generations. Things can shift and change. The very heart 
of our claim as followers of Jesus is that we are verbs, that we actually can become something different as we engage with Jesus through the power of his spirit. And so we're constantly changing. The only question is, is how are we changing? To what end are we changing? That doesn't mean that we become human or not human, but, but it really gives the opportunity on two levels to both reject evolutionary thinking in terms of how it's portrayed in science, but it also gives the opportunity to say, hey, look, over time, uh, we are influenced, we are verbs, we change. And so it does matter what we watch on TV. It does matter if we decide to have a quiet time in the morning. It does matter to attend church. Uh, it does matter to engage with the practice of our faith because we're going to be formed by that. And, and so I think those two parallel conversations, right, in terms of rejecting the evolutionary side of it, but recognizing that we are influenced and dogs did adapt on a lot of levels. And adaptation does happen across both humans uh, and, and the animal kingdom in a variety of ways. It doesn't change your essence, but it does mean that we are influenced. It will be interesting to see just in terms of the value of human life and the place uh, and the the question in the culture of whether or not, you know, animals, specific animals are of equal uh, value to humans, um, you know, whether or not there's a research project out there about taking a human baby and letting it be raised by wolves to test that mm. theory. Like, right. I mean, I just think that, like, yep. there are right. opportunities here for conversations for Christians to engage in about the absurdity of some research um, and about the extent that we would go as a people um, to experiment on our own. Like, I just think that there are all kinds Indeed. of interesting ethical conversations to be had surrounding this. All right, we got to take a very brief break. When, um, uh, when Peter and I come back, um, we're going to talk about baseball because I feel like um, this is a story that only Peter can help me understand. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. It's baseball season and baseball is back in America and we're not going to talk about the controversy of the All-Star game being moved from Georgia, from Atlanta, Georgia to Denver, Colorado. We are going to talk about um, a, 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 a guy who is playing baseball like, frankly, no one has ever played baseball before. Um, he can pitch and hit and run better than most of his peers can pitch or hit, or run. Um, introduce us, Peter Kapsner, to this um, new superstar. Yeah, oh, thanks for bringing up the story on baseball. Of course, you, you know I'm, you, you just got me hook, line, and sinker on this one. But uh, Shohei Otani is his name. He's a pitcher uh, and hitter from the country of Japan. Of course, uh, Japan has a, a pretty long history of a, of a love affair with baseball, and there have been incredibly successful players that have also made their way to this side of the pond and, and have uh, made, a, made an impact in Major League Baseball. But he's really unique in the sense that by the time, you know, most kids in Little League, right, they're going to want to pitch and they're going to want to hit. And, and a lot of them do. My son was in his first year of Little League of kid pitch and they try out all versions of kids pitching, right? And some of them could throw strikes and some of them mostly throw it over the backstop. And it just kind of depends. And But they all love it, generally speaking, and they all want to hit. But as you get further along, you have to specialize in one of those two fields because of the demands being a professional athlete put upon you to to really become good at that specific craft. 
This guy's unique. He uh, is one of actually the best pitchers in baseball right now. He's able to throw 100 miles an hour, which is mind-numbing to me. But he also, and so he would have made the all-star game on the merits of being a pitcher, but he's also currently the best hitter in baseball. He's leading the league in home runs and wait, RBIs. Wait, 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 put a pin, put a pin in that. Yep. He's a pitcher and he's a really Man. good pitcher Yep. and he can hit. It's crazy. It's actually like most of the time when like, isn't there one stands, league, isn't there one league where they don't even let the pitchers hit? Oh, for sure. The National League does not allow pitchers. to. What? Well, no, I'm sorry. The American <laughs> League doesn't allow pitchers to hit. And it's comical in the National League when they do tend to hit. They come up there and they sort of just wave and flail away for three quick strikes. And then they usually sit back down. This guy not is this the guy. Most, he's the most feared hitter in baseball. And what I love about it, Carmen, <laughs> is that he goes to the All-Star game. And he is the luminous figure of baseball, right? Like everybody wants to be around him. The crush of reporters, the crush of other players around him uh, is unlike something we've seen in quite some time in baseball. And how does this guy respond? And I think this is where we can learn some things about this is that in our country, and and again, I love our country, but one of the, the pitfalls of our country is that if you get good at something, there's this immediate push that you've got to develop your own brand and you got to get your own website and you got to get your own blog and you got to get what like all of these things and you got to get as many people following you as you can and and so professional athletes are usually these days leveraging their skills within their sports to create their personal brand so that they can uh, have you know wild global success that features them well, in Japanese culture, it's very different. It, it is, and I'm sure there's many things wrong with Japanese culture, but one of the things that I'm intrigued by related to it is it really is a community-based culture. And Otani is maybe the most humble person that I've seen in quite some time that has the, the superstar status that he does. He treats people with respect. He treats them well. He is very deferential to his teammates that clearly are there to see him, and yet he is coming underneath them wanting to lift them up. And then he's like, you know, I just want to bring some honor to my people back home. I know they've invested a lot of energy in my success, and I simply want to carry myself in a such in such a way that brings honor to the people around me. I, I haven't seen an I mean, I, I think athletes from previous generations had that sense of tie to the local community, and they had a sense to, uh, of tie to town and wanting to treat people well. But he's carrying himself with a humility and a grace that I'm not saying he's a believer. I'm not saying that we should follow him as we follow you. It's none of those things. But I do think it's it's worth paying note uh, of somebody that has such a status. And yet the way he's carrying himself probably could be a good remedy to a lot of the ills that that we have currently and trying to have relationships with one another in our country. It's a fascinating story. I love it. It's a totally fascinating story. We will um, you you will be the person who will keep an eye on it for us. How's that sound? Uh, you know, I could suffer my way through that, Carmen. You know, <laughs> when I'm sitting watching baseball at night and the, and the kids are around, they're like, Dad, let's go do this. I'll say, I've got to work for Carmen right now. You I'm don't on understand. assignment. Not, I'm I, on I, assignment. Not, it's not, this or she's going to make us raise wolves. I don't know. For sure. sure. This, this is an extensive <laughs> journalistic assignment. I normally don't work in the evenings, but, I, but I, I'm streaming MLB Network now every night watching Otani. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the wolf puppies are on their way. Okay. Oh, uh, that's thank all, you. I know. That's all we have time for. That's all. Although I really was interested in talking with you about this crazy lightning strike in India yeah. where these people were standing on the top of this tower, which does not seem like a good place to be standing in the middle of a storm. But they were taking selfies with the lightning strikes happening behind them, and then lightning struck the tower where they were standing. And I just thought there's some... 
hot there's conversation a hot to have there, but we don't. There. There's a lot yeah, of conversation to, we'd have there. And back to the Wolves for just a second. I think at this point it might be a little raw in our family because we lost a chicken last week to an owl. <gasps> and so if, if mm. you and it was it was rough, I got to tell you. So if you sent wolves to our house at this point, I have a feeling it might cause a little stress in the family. But but give All it right, a shot. Now see, but there's it. a there's a science experiment in that, because if the wolf puppy was raised with the chickens, would it lose the instinct to kill them? Okay, I'm not sure I'm ready to take that risk. There's not a lot of reward in that, and the risk seems high. So that's great. I love. It. Hey, Peter, I love you. Hey, thanks for yeah, joining us today. As always, bringing uh, bringing some joy to the conversation. We got to take a very brief break for Breakpoint, and then we'll be right back. All right, so I was uh, reading a headline this morning related to a couple of dozen Amazon employees who have quit because Amazon continues to platform and sell Priscilla Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage, which is helping us understand the rise in uh, identification of young women as transgender and all of the ways in which our culture presses them into um, all kinds of therapies and ultimately surgery to transition medically, physically, uh, surgically from female to male or male to female. Um, So this next documentary that we're going to talk about is called Transmission. So it's two words, Transmission. You can find the documentary on YouTube by just typing in the two words transmission. We're going to talk with Callie Fell from the Center for Bioethics and Culture about exactly what's going on in terms of transitioning and detransitioning in the culture today. This is Max Licato. What kind of person does unresolved guilt create? An anxious one, forever hiding, running, denying, pretending. As one man admitted, I was always living a life for fear someone might see me for who I really was and think less of me. I hid behind my super spirituality, but this lie was exhausting and anxiety producing. Unresolved guilt will turn you into a miserable, weary, angry, fretful mess. In a psalm David wrote after his affair with Bathsheba, the king said, When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. As Paul told Titus, God's grace is the fertile soil out of which courage sprouts. God's readiness to give and forgive is now public. Salvation is available for everyone. Trans, as in transgender, and then the word mission. Callie Fell, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Hi, Carmen. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Well, thank you so much for um, for joining us. We're going to talk about uh, your documentary, Transmission, What's the Rush to Reassign Gender? This is a serious topic, a serious concern. Um, why don't you give us an, an introduction to the documentary? Sure, sure. Um, the Center for Bioethics and Culture, we exist to educate people. And one of the ways we like to do that is through filmmaking. So this is one of several films that we've produced. This is our newest film. And this film looks into 
the gender identity industry as it pertains to children transitioning. And that means transitioning um, from one gender or sex to another. Um, and so, and all of the ethical issues around allowing children to medically and surgically transition. So when you watch the documentary, you guys are going to hear testimonies from uh, two individuals who are in the process of detransitioning. You're also going to hear from parents of people who have transitioned, as well as parents who have chosen to not participate in the reassignment of gender to their child. Um, You're going to hear from doctors. You are going to hear from a range of people, some of whom have a very vested interest in what's happening. You're also going to hear from a number of people who've been, you know, canceled because of uh, the position that they have taken on such on such issues and matters. So um, I'd love for you to introduce our listeners to Jade and Jade's story. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So Jade is a woman who transitioned, and I'll, I'll remind the audience, both of the detransitioners are who we really view as the heroes of the story. They decided to transition later in life. So these aren't, these aren't folks who were children when they decided to transition, but these are individuals who waited later in life and even still regretted their decision to transition and started the process of what's called detransitioning. And so Jade, one of the detransitioners in our story, is a woman who transitioned later in life and um, transitioned to male, had um, procedures done to um, try to have a more male body, um, and then later regretted that decision. And in her story, you'll hear a lot of regret in the fact that her early life was scarred with a lot of trauma, right? She was um, several cases of abuse and trauma and how that has kind of shaped her story. I found Jade's testimony um, or the, what she shared very, very compelling and also, you know, just so sad um, having had surgery that has resulted in her being infertile and therefore, you know, no possibility of ever having children um, who will be biologically her own, something that uh, at the time that she made her transition from female to male or living in a male body, um, you know, was not something that she thought she wanted. But that's a part of, I think, this conversation. And that is that when people are young, certainly children, but even when they're very young adults, making a decision about um, about changing what your body is capable of doing by changing your genitalia through surgery and or your internal sex organs, um, those are just not not considerations that people of a very young age are really able to make. Right, right. And you, you hit on a really important point there, Carmen, and that is that children can't give consent for this type of procedure. Um, there's an interesting, and lots of, lots of the physicians in this film talk about this point um, at various points, um, but especially, specifically when they talk about family building and their fertility and what they plan to do later in life. I mean, how many of us thought when we were nine or 10 years old that they, we were either going to have no kids or I know I was one who thought I was, I'm going to have five kids and they're all going to be girls and this is how my family is going to look like. And I just had no idea. And so we're asking children to make these decisions about their fertility, about family building, before they can even really 
think about those things clearly. Um, in, in part of the film, there's a study with an infographic that we show, and it shows that um, the myriad of reasons as why kids who are being put on puberty blockers, why, why they chose not to either do fertility pres preservation or why they chose to do the fertility preservation. And there's just a smattering of reasons. And to me, that kind of just shows the fact that it's not something that kids are thinking about. And it's not something that children can really give consent for. I made a number of notes um, during the documentary as I was watching it. Uh, and I think that the introduction to terminology is important for people to learn. I think that the sort of opposing approaches, either the gender affirmation approach or the watchful waiting approach and introduction to those concepts is really helpful. Um, I think it's going to be surprising to a lot of people just how um, just how many parts and pieces there are to the engine that is driving the rush to reassign gender. I think people are going to be surprised that kids are being uh, socially transitioned at school without the knowledge of their parents. I think they're going to be surprised to hear pediatricians, um, you know, basically threaten parents with the, their child's impending suicide if they don't um, interrupt the natural development of their body and, and, you know, and come alongside them and affirm this gender transition very, very, very early. Um, you want to talk about or touch on any of those topics? Yeah, I think, um, again, the, the physicians kind of talk on this again. I think it was Dr. Von Moll and Dr. Cruz and talking about how, you know, parents, they want the best interest for their children. And talking with each of the parents in this film, there was no doubt that they have great love for their children and they really want what's best for their kids. And um, they're risking, you know, having relationships with people in their family. They're risking, they're really risking a lot just to be able to speak out and try to protect their children. And um, I think it was Dr. Cruz had said in the film, you know, these are parents who, who don't know as much as the medical community. And so we're putting a really big trust in the medical community, especially our pediatricians who have probably been your pediatrician since the baby was born um, or your child was born, and, um, and, and how it's really hard to speak against maybe a pediatrician or to find someone that you can trust when it, when it comes to these sensitive topics and gender dysphoria. Um, but all the more important, right? Um, Bren really, Bren, one of the parents in the film really speaks to that point about finding someone that you can trust and that you can trust with your children's lives and, 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 and the issues that they're, they're struggling with. All right, we're going to take a very brief break and continue this conversation with Callie Fell from the Center for Bioethics and Culture. We're talking about the documentary Transmission. We'll be right back. Continuing our conversation now with Callie Fell, we're talking about the Center for Bioethics and Culture's new documentary. You can find it on YouTube, Transmission. Callie, let's um let's pick up with this part of the conversation. Um, in, in the UK, many of us are familiar with the Kira Bell case um, and the Tavistock Judicial Review where, you know, in the UK there, you know, there is evidence that, hey, you can't subject these young people to, to these procedures when they don't really understand the full ramifications of their decisions. 
we don't have that kind of ruling here in the United States, and we also don't have the kind of oversight of these pediatric gender clinics in the U.S. that seem to be popping up everywhere. Can you just describe to us the evolution of this in the U.S.? Yeah, it's really interesting. And, you know, we feel like this film was made for such a time as this, right? Um, this is this film is poignant to the times that we're in. And it's, it's encouraging. Um, we were kind of, as the film was being created, watching and following the Kira Bell case that you talk about. Um, and that's not a large part of the film story. We do touch on it. But it was really encouraging to kind of see her win and um, changes being made. Um, as this film was being created, and it was like, yes, this is this is what we're doing this for, so that we can educate people in the United States and hopefully make changes like like that are already being done elsewhere. Um, like the N- the NHS is no longer saying that puberty blockers are fully reversible, which is something that is being said here in the United States. Um, and the other thing is, is there are states that are pushing back. You know, Florida, Arkansas. Um, And I think we have to remain hopeful and we have to continue to educate people um, on the risks of this so that we can see changes in legislation so we can protect our children. So for those of you who are listening, and this is really a new subject matter area for you, you may or may not be aware that puberty blockers are now being prescribed for very young children here in the United States. Um, Puberty blockers are designed to interrupt the normal biological process Um, of the development of a human being. And the use of puberty blockers then leads to the use of cross-sex hormones. Um, And when advocates say, or even when doctors say, hey, we're just pushing the pause button, we're just buying a little more time, it's totally reversible, that's absolutely not true. Once a kid is medicalized, this is language from the documentary, they are medicalized for the rest of their life. Now, just think for a moment, who has a vested interest in a kid getting on drugs when they're really young, and staying on drugs forever. Well, that would be big pharma. And so let's just be mindful of what's going on um, and the people who make money off of what is happening. And then let's just ask ourselves, does that group of people necessarily have the best interest of my kid at heart? No, they don't. The other part of this, um, Callie, that I just found like so disturbing was these pediatricians lying to these parents in front of their children, basically threatening that your child's going to commit suicide if you don't participate in this um, gender transition or gender affirmation process. Yeah, that was really sad to listen to. And, you know, when we when we created this film, um, you know, when you create a documentary, you don't really have script. You don't have things that you have people say. We just kind of let people tell their story. Um, and then we create um kind of the, the script from there. What what points keep being reiterated? How can we tell a story with what's being said by all of these different personal testimonies? And when we heard that, it was just, I think it was just silence <laughs> across, you know, everyone was just so quiet and just could not believe that, that Bren, and that was Bren who had that experience and, and another gal as well, but that are being told. And um, I think it's important that some of the pediatricians or the doctors that we have um, kind of who are against this gender affirmation, um, they're talking and they are able to to tell listeners that, hey, this isn't true. There are no long-term studies in children. And then some of the studies that have the longest follow-up are showing that suicide ideation still occur after medical intervention. And that, so 
the fact that somewhere either people I hate to think that doctors and pediatricians are lying, but it just seems like somewhere there's there's the truth, um, and and it's sad to hear parents are being threatened in this way. So um, I was uh, surprised to learn um, that there are these gender expansive these clinical care programs for quote gender expansive children and adolescents. I mean, pretty much in every state in the eastern U.S. Um, and then all up and down the West Coast. Um, mm-hmm. And so we're talking about uh, something that has really turned into an industry here in the United States. Um, just just share with us, Callie, what you guys are observing in terms of sort of the growth of the activist effort in this area. You mean in the growth of like activists who are pro the medical transitioning of children? Yes. Yeah. Um, it, it feels very overwhelming. I'm not going to lie. It's taken and it's something that's just recently just seemed like to grow like like weeds just everywhere. Um, and, it, and, and the thing is, is if you try to talk about this issue or you try to put a hand up to say, stop, let's think, which is what the goal of the documentary is. Right? We, we say several different times, like, can we talk? That's what we want to do. We want to talk about this issue because mm-hmm. we're seeing that um, as it's spreading through our, um, through our school systems, through the news, through Hollywood, um, people who are trying to say stop or slow it or just think about it are being silenced and hushed and canceled. And that's not okay. Um, We should be able to critically think about medical interventions, especially as they relate to our children and especially as they relate to things that could have long-lasting effects. Um, And I think that's what's so scary to me about this, is that it's spreading so quickly, and don't you dare stand in the way of it. I appreciated that you featured a number of individuals, um, journalists, academics, doctors, um, parents, who, you know, have basically said, look, I'm not going to be forced to lie. I'm not going to submit to all of this. But efforts to silence them, and certainly the public bullying of them, um, is real. Like people are paying a real price to stand up and tell the truth about these things. Yeah. Yeah. Colin, um, one of the evolutionary bio- biologists that we interview, um, you know, he went to the academia because he felt like that was a safe place to grow and learn and ask questions and get answers. And then he was very swiftly booted out of academia. And um, you can find more on him if you Google him and his story. Um, but uh, Megan Murphy, another gal that we interviewed, she was kicked off Twitter for simply just saying that um, men aren't women. Um, it's not a false statement. She wasn't being mean or bullying anyone, but was then kicked off Twitter. So, um, yeah, these are these. It's cancel culture is very real. Callie, um, I appreciate you being with us today. Callie Fell serves at the Center for Bioethics and Culture. We've been talking today about their documentary, Transmission. That's two words, and you can find it on YouTube. Again, go to Transmission, watch the documentary, Transmission. Callie, thanks for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. We really appreciate it. Yep. We'll be right back.
All right, uh, travel mercy prayers appreciated as I uh, head in the direction of many of you. I'm going to be in the Twin Cities next couple of days for the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference. If you still want to join us, there's space available. Registration still open both in person and online. The event is at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. You can check it all out at northwesternchristianwritersconference.com. Excited about tomorrow's show after we catch up with our uh, friends, Matt Hawkins, Dan DeWitt, and Adam Holtz. We're going to have a conversation with Max Lucado. So you hear him, you hear him here every day uh, during the program for a really short segment, but he's going to join me for an extended conversation tomorrow about a couple of new children's books he has out. Where'd My Giggle Go, which is for really little kids, and then a book that he co-authored with Andrea, his daughter, that is designed for, you know, I would say that, that that tween stage, early teens, anxious for nothing for young readers, really excellent um, resource. And so looking forward to those conversations on the program tomorrow. You can get today's podcast at MyFaithRadio.com. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.